All right. Welcome to season two of the Renew Church Leaders podcast. I'm Jason Henderson. I run operations at Renew, and I'm here with Dave Stovall. What's up, guys? My name is Dave Stovall. I do a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff for Renew, like videos and podcasts and you name it. Yeah. In fact, if you've been on our Facebook page... Or I, I think we can. I think we can still find it on Renew.org. There's been one or two really amazing videos. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on, and Dave uh, single-handedly crafted those. Thank you. That was so eloquent. Yeah, what you just they were, said they were good. Um, so welcome. Yeah, we're going to take a little bit of a different strategy. We're kicking off this season with some of the speakers that we heard at the Renew gathering back in October 2018. And the first one that we're going to listen to on this podcast is Renee Sproles. So Renee is the director of the School of Christian Thought, which is, it sounds really cool. They tackle a lot of hard topics, and uh, that's connected with the North Boulevard Church of Christ down in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And Dave, I remember uh, you were taken with Renee's talk, and you uh, went up and spoke to her afterwards about it, right? I did. It's just everything she was saying was so applicable to me at that time. It's just all about the reliability of God's Word and also a lot about how actions can precede beliefs sometimes. You know, like I'll sometimes think in my head, like, you know, once I get everything right, like inside my, my head and my faith, if I believe everything then I will totally start to surrender and start to live out everything that the Bible says, but it doesn't really work that way. You right. know what I'm saying? And, and everything she was saying was really was speaking to me, so I thought it was awesome. Yeah, it's kind of like when somebody says, man, one day I'm going to go to the gym, but I think I need to be in better shape before I go to the gym. <laughs> That's what I'm doing now. Are you trying to call me out? We just talked about this. And, and so it's like, man, once I really fully understand the Bible, then I can obey it. And yeah. it just, yeah, so it's, uh, it's kind of a cart before the horse. I was just talking with... Um, Renee gets into obedience-based theology. I was just talking with a group of Christian leaders. They were they were comparing disciple-making movements in North America to disciple-making movements in Africa, and they were just like posing the question: Why does it seem like disciple-making movements in Africa just take off exponentially, whereas in North America, you know, we're we're in decline really in terms of people who say they believe in the God of the Bible. And we actually had somebody from from a disciple-making movement in Africa with us. He kept saying, it's it starts with discipline. It starts with obedience and discipline. That shapes the lifestyle. That shapes the culture. Um, and so we just were imagining, what would the church look like here in North America if we began with obedience instead of having to prove, hey, guys, this works. Hey, come to our 16-part Sunday series on why the Bible actually works. What if we actually started in North America with obedience discipline first? That's awesome. So I, I know that in my experience, um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where, you know, you did something wrong and somebody kind of tries to call you on it. You make a lie. You're like, no, I didn't do that. Not me, man. <laughs> right, right. Oh, I forgot. Forgot. It's just me. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's nobody that ever feels so trapped, so uh, bound than somebody who's stuck in a web of lies trying to cover up something wrong that they did. And I know that when you finally confess, you just come clean. You're like, all right, look, guys, you know, I'm, I haven't been on the level. Here's what's going on. And they give you grace. It's like a weight lifts. Yeah. 
off your chest. 100%. Always reminds me of James 1.5. James, I always talk about James and his laws of liberty. And you're like, how can more rules make you feel free? But he says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it. So James says, don't just hear it. Don't just be a thinker, but be a doer. Uh, follow the law, obey, and they'll be blessed in what they do. And so I think Renee really uh, touches on this as she talks about obedience, theology, the power of obeying, even before you understand. So let's give it a listen. My name's Renee Sproles, and my credentials are I've been a wife and a stay-at-home mom for the past 15 years or so, uh, homeschooling my two kiddos. But five years ago, our church gave me the opportunity to be part of something really cool. Uh, it's called the School of Christian Thought. And um, it was started so that uh, we could bring really high-level, um, robust speakers to our community to speak from a Christian worldview about every walk of life, from science to abortion to suffering to sexuality, um, every walk of life. And so today, I want to tell you about a couple of um, women that I had the privilege of meeting at the School of Christian Thought. Miriam Rostenpour and Marziah Amirzadeh were raised by Muslim families in Iran. They were studying Christian theology in Turkey in 2005 when they met, and they realized that they'd become Christians about the same time, six years earlier. They decided to join forces. So when they got back to Iran, they started some house churches out of their apartment, one for uh, young people and one for prostitutes. They also decided that they needed to address the issue of false Bibles being distributed in Iran. I didn't know this, but Iran publishes New Testaments that claims that Jesus is a prophet, just like Muhammad, and that prophet, the prophet Muhammad comes after him. And so people think they've read the Bible, and they think they know who Jesus is, and they just give him a pass. So they decided, nope, we're going to take a, a map of the city of Tehran. They made a grid out of it, and they decided, under the cover of darkness usually, to go methodically through their city and covertly distribute New Testaments. They put them in mailboxes. They left them on the back of uh, taxi cabs. They put them in restaurants. And they didn't tell their families what they were doing because they knew they would need plausible deniability when they got caught. They didn't want to endanger their own families. So two years this went on. And the country of Iran, they thought they'd been invaded by a Christian organization, like that it had infiltrated their country. It's these two girls <laughs> distributing 20,000 New Testaments in their um, capital city. Two years go by. And sure enough, the knock comes on their apartment door that they knew would be coming. It was the police. They were there to arrest them on charges of apostasy, anti-government activity, and blasphemy. Miriam and Marzia, they were taken in the back of a police car and taken to the back door of the police department, and they knew that was not a good thing. Eventually, they were transferred to Evan Prison, you may have heard of this on the news. Evan Prison is where lots of people go to die, where lots of people go to be tortured. There they sat 
in Evan Prison with no Bible, separated from one another. But what they had were memories of the verses they'd read in Scripture. Marzia puts it this way, even though it was very difficult being in that horrible place, our faith grew because we didn't have a Bible with us for nine months, but we learned how to live it, how to live the verses of the Bible. You know, sometimes we just read the Bible every day without getting anything from the Bible. But at that time, when we were in prison, we learned how to live with those verses. And that's why I'm telling you, it's more important to learn just one verse every day and actually live it. So good theology, it's not simply knowledge. It's obedience. Jesus himself says, if we claim to be his disciples, we'll obey the truth. Obedience is key to understanding and freedom. When I decide to trust and follow Jesus, I enter a kingdom, not a democratic republic. The American Heritage Dictionary defines a democratic republic as a political order in which the supreme power lies in a body of citizens who are entitled to vote for their representatives who are responsible to them. A kingdom, on the other hand, is a political or territorial unit ruled by a sovereign. So the temptation for many of us Christians in America is to approach scripture with a view of a democratic republic, that we get to hold those in power answerable to us. But Jesus invites me to a kingdom, not a democratic republic. As a citizen of Jesus' heavenly kingdom, I must obey the perfect law that gives freedom. And I can do this with the counsel of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me and a continued posture of repentance when I sin. What's revealed in scripture overrides my opinion, my inclinations, what I wish were so, and every other self-inspired theology I might create. I don't get to sing like Elsa in the popular Disney movie, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Actually, Jesus claims the opposite of Elsa. If we obey his teachings, then we will know the truth and be free. Jesus says the discipline of obedience precedes understanding and freedom. I have some friends who claim to be red-letter Christians. They approach the Bible like a yummy buffet, scanning the books of the Bible and choosing the, their favorite parts, which is mostly the words of Jesus, except the parts where he talks about repentance and hell. They don't need that old bloody warlike Old Testament with all its rules and regulations. And I love my friends, and I want God's best for them, but I strongly disagree with this approach to Scripture. Simply put, I believe the Bible is the ultimate source of truth and salvation for holiness. I believe it contains a consistent and coherent theology in all of its books. As Christians, we can use the Bible for praise, for moral instruction, for worldview framing, for comfort, but we must use obedience to Scripture to inform our theology. A mentor of mine once told me theology is like this. It's like taking the pieces of a puzzle and trying to fit them together without leaving any of the pieces out or trimming the edges to make them fit. The problem is, most of us don't come to the Bible looking to form a theology. 
He said, our practice is our theology. This is why so many churchy people get upset when we change something on our weekend services or in their favorite ministry, even though they might not be able to completely articulate it, by changing their practice, we're messing with their ability to make sense of the full revelation of scripture. So my husband and I have taught a parenting class for 20 years. Um, We didn't teach it because we knew what we were doing. We taught it to learn how to be parents. So we figured if we just taught it again and again and again, we'd eventually like learn what we were doing. This parenting class was totally transformative and so effective in um, mentoring us on how to be godly parents because it looked to the Bible to answer two vital questions. What's the nature of our children? And how can I lead my children to trust and follow Jesus? You see, what I assume about my kids determines how I parent them. We Americans, we're really optimistic people. We think that we're basically thinking creatures who are pretty much good. And we just need exposure to the right information, the right ideas, the best um, messages, and we'll be able to live our best lives. But we're not, as author James Smith puts it so aptly, brains on a stick. We're not living, breathing computers into which we can download the best information and change our behavior. Put it this way. How many of you know that eating a balanced diet and exercising is important for good health? I hear this every year at my doctor's visit. The thing is, 20 years ago, I actually obeyed the first part. I was eating a balanced diet. And guess what? I began to love to cook. I loved food. But the exercise part, I've never been characterized by obedience to that. And I still don't love it. Even though I say I believe in it, I don't really do it. And I definitely don't love it. So you see, we're not just basically good people who just need more information to be the best that we can be. We don't just need the right ideas, the right messages, the right information, because while we're made to think, we're much more than thinkers. God in his revealed word tells us that we're made in his image and we're made to love. Jesus noted this when he was asked which is the greatest commandment. The most important one, is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. You see, we're not primarily thinking creatures, we're loving creatures. And that would be great news if we weren't marred by sin. God explains it like this, Following the rebellion of Adam and Eve, the consequences of sin ripple through humanity. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Later, Jeremiah chimes in. The heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And the Apostle Paul gives us even more bad news. We suppress the truth by our wickedness, and our thinking becomes futile. So, if my children's hearts are evil, if their hearts are deceitful, if their minds suppress the truth, and if they think futile thoughts, what am I to do? What what can I do, since this is true of me as well? 
How can I parent my children so they want to trust and follow Jesus? In a word, obedience. Obedience in my life and in the life of my children. Rosaria Butterfield calls this the hermeneutics of obedience, and child psychology calls this actions preceding beliefs. Let me read you an excerpt from that parenting class. Young children do not have the moral means to create or to respond to right and wrong. This does not mean, however, that you suspend the training of right responses. Actions precede beliefs. Teach her to keep her food on her high chair tray. Teach him not to hit. Teach her not to scream in the house. Teach him correct behavior. When the age is right, they will understand why the behavior is right. So when teaching young children under the age of five, the pattern of right behavior can be expected to precede knowledge and understanding of right behavior. I could teach my children who are two years old to come to me when I call them by making a fun game out of it with M&Ms, rewarding them and praising them when they do the right thing. And this is actually preferable because by training my children to obedience before they even understand why, it's inclining their heart to love God and love his truth. Obedience directs our love toward whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy. It directs our love towards God, our good daddy, but it also brings knowledge and freedom. Remember what Jesus said to the Jews who believed him? He said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth you will, set, will set you free. Obedience precedes knowledge and freedom. And whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. Our home wasn't a lame place to be that was no fun. It actually created a wonderful atmosphere where there was much less tension and conflict because we were all characterized by submission and obedience. Child psychology and adult psychology also say that in adults it's flipped, that beliefs precede actions. But I disagree. I think adults are really no different than children in this area. What do we do when we come to a difficult teaching in scripture? Oh, we're tempted to ignore it, call it cultural, and instead of looking for how we can obey it, what it meant to them, and how I can obey it today, we just try to wriggle out of it. Jesus said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Part of following Christ is obeying him even when his commands don't make sense to me, just like young children with their parents. It's a lowly position. He says so. It requires submission. It requires obedience. Jesus affirms this teaching by noting that anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. This sounds a lot like actions preceding beliefs. The temptation is great, though, to come to Scripture like that yummy buffet taking our chocolate cake and leaving behind the broccoli and the Brussels sprouts. Because the Bible clashes with us at certain points. And the truth is, it clashes with all cultures at certain points. If sinful humanity is stamped with the image of God, doesn't it make sense that in our cultures we'd get some things right and some things wrong, and that that would vary from culture to culture? 
The kingdom of God and the perfect law that gives freedom have been at odds with cultural norms throughout all of history. As a matter of fact, that's what makes the Bible timeless. Because if culture is making something out of nothing and assigning meaning to things, we're going to get some things right and we're going to get some things wrong. But scripture is able to teach, instruct, contradict, and correct all people in all ages. Let me give you some examples. Jana Brown is my best friend from childhood. She's one of my heroes. After 17 years in the classroom, uh, she decided to uh, take a leap of faith and become a missionary. And she went to Beijing, China for several years using the Bible to teach English and um, having house churches in her home. She's now back in the Nashville area and she has such a love for the Chinese. She works with Chinese students who come to the university to study. Now her students come from an honor shame culture, a culture where lying is second nature. You lie to save face. You lie to make your life a little bit easier. You lie so you don't bring shame on someone. So when she comes to Colossians 3, 8 through 10 with her students, where Paul says, stop lying and tell the truth, they find that unreasonable. They find it really hard to obey. And although they could teach us a whole lot about submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ and willingness to suffer, they have trouble submitting to that teaching about telling the truth. Or consider the Middle East. Forgiveness in the Middle East seems radical, dishonorable even. Nassim Fahim was a guard at St. Mark's Cathedral in Egypt. He died in a terrorist bomb attack, saving dozens of people in the process. His widow on the left here being interviewed is a Coptic Christian and she publicly offered forgiveness to her attacker. She said, I'm not angry at the one who did this. I'm telling him, may God forgive you, and we also forgive you. 12 seconds of silence followed as Amir Adib struggled to find the words. How great is this forgiveness you have? If it were my father, I could never say this. Forgiveness in this culture is a radical concept, but we Americans just love it along with grace and mercy. So when I'm here in America where sex is everything on the one hand, you can't live a full life without it, and nothing on the other hand, it's just an appetite that you satisfy when you, like when you are hungry and you eat some food, where equality for men and women means sameness, where marriage can be between any two people or anything, where half of marriages end in divorce, the Bible's teaching on marriage and gender relations can seem outdated, irrelevant, or even worse, it can seem harmful. But if the Bible, if what the Bible claims about itself is true, I'm in mortal danger if I do not listen and obey. So if the Bible is all it claims to be, and it is, it can tell us how we got here. It can tell us about reality. It can tell us how things should have been, and it can tell us the bad news about our brokenness and our sin. It can tell us the good news about repentance and salvation in Jesus Christ. It can tell us that we're dearly, dearly loved, and it can tell us how to grow in understanding, and that's obedience. Many people around the world prayed for Miriam and Marzia. After 259 days, they were released from prison. The following year, they were cleared of all charges. 
But I think they might put the timeline of their freedom just a little bit differently. Because through obedience, daily obedience, difficult obedience, obedience that flew in the face of reason and their personal desire, they were free long before they got out of that prison. Marzia puts it this way. There were many verses we could remember in that prison. For example, in Matthew 5, it says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's easy to read that verse, but when you're in that condition, it's very difficult to act based on that verse. And we had a very challenging time in prison. We learned how to live those verses and show Jesus to others through our obedience to those verses. Praying for the very people who hurt them who made them suffer, who insulted them, who planned to kill them, they found the freedom that Jesus described. Obedience to Jesus' teaching set them free long before the Iranian government ever did. It gave them understanding they never would have had by just reading scripture. And so it can be for us. Read scripture, yes. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand what it means. Yes, and obey what you find. Jesus said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Part of following Christ is obeying him, even when his commands don't make sense to me, even when I don't want to, just like young children with their parents. Do I like everything I read in the Bible? If I'm honest with you, I don't. But Jesus promises me, that if I obey what I find, I will gain an ever deeper love, respect, and understanding for God. I'll have an obedience-inspired theology. Well, that was awesome stuff from Renee. Yeah. Um, it was, for me, it was just as inspiring listening through it again as it was um, the first time I heard it there at the gathering. So... I just especially love like when she ends on that obedience inspired theology. Um, it's like, you know, the total opposite of what, you know, we at Renew describe as self-inspired theology, which is for me personally, what it meant was not being connected to a local church. You know, I was in Christian entertainment, so I tour and I wouldn't go to church and I would listen to podcasts, read books, or listen to sermons, and more importantly, talk with other believers about how we felt about scripture and all of that just kind of mixes up together and just becomes my systematic theology. Just automatically uploads into my brain that that's, what, that's the stuff that I believe. And, and it not even, I don't know how, many, how much percentage of it is actual scripture versus what was sounded true and felt familiar to me. So yeah. I love that. Obedience-inspired theology. That's great. Which, although she says uh, theology is not just knowledge, but obedience, that we aren't just created to be thinkers, but to obey. But I think it's not less than uh, understanding, knowledge, uh, renewing your mind, thinking, because you have to understand what it is that you're obeying. Um, you were talking about self-inspired theology as kind of this boilerplate collection of ideas where it's just like, oh, I'll take that from that podcast. I like that book. And actually, I was with some church leaders recently. They were talking to me about how the next generation, because you're like 35, Dave. Yeah. And so they were saying that even like the next generation down, like the Gen Z crowd, 
they actually have this pragmatic inspired theology. What I mean by that is they are looking around asking the question, what's working for that guy? That guy seems to have it all together. What's working for him or, or the, you know, that couple that I know, they seem really happy. Maybe I'll take some of what they're doing. And again, I don't know that that's a full understanding. It's just like this piecemeal. It's almost like another form of self-inspired theology. And that's just interesting to me because it's like, you know, the generation after me is looking for what is working in people's lives and they want to apply that to themselves. But I feel like my generation, we were looking to see what was not working. And we were like, well, we're just going to do the complete opposite of that because they look miserable or whatever. But if I really dig down deeper, it's kind of like I was seeing moments of our culture that were clashing with like scripture, right? And so and I remember now that was one of the big reasons that I love what Renee said was, of course, our culture is going to come across things that Paul says or Jesus said. And we're like, um, that must be a cultural thing because that's not how we do things now. We're much more evolved now. Like we know better. So we're going to do it this way. Almost like we're unique because it's North America and we're just way far ahead of everybody. So we're going to twist that a little bit because that was just written for them. Right. But it's like, all cultures have clashed with the Bible because yes. we've all lost our way, you know? Right. Yeah. So you're saying like what you viewed as something not working could just be that it was just countercultural. Yeah. It's not maybe that it did or didn't work, but it wasn't jiving with culture at the time. And I was I was jiving with culture at the time. This is the 90s, <laughs> brah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, you're right. And Renee's point was at some point in every culture the Bible's teachings will clash. It, it's kind of like uh, one of the big things that we uh, are producing a lot of content on at Renew is complementarianism. That is a classic Christian viewpoint of godly male and female gender roles. And I think culture is making it extremely difficult for anyone, Christian or not, to practice obedience of, say, godly male leadership in the household. And like, that's something that when you practice that, and of course we're talking about godly male leadership, not, not over dominant, you know, male authority, not, uh, you know, not a submissive, weak woman, but a godly male role and a godly female role. You know, in fact, the same word for submission, uh, in that classic Ephesians verse, where it talks about wives submit to your husbands, that always gets taken out of context as controversial. But that same submission was the same uh, word for submission that it's used for Jesus, the Son of God, uh, to his parents. You know, he took a meek stance in allowing his parents to hold authority over him. That's awesome. Um, And he's the Son of God. So um, we're not talking about something that wouldn't go well for somebody, but we're talking about something that superficially sounds countercultural. Yeah. You know, when I first started learning about the strong male leadership in the home, that whole idea really just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, no, you know, this is, we're, it's equal here. Like, this is the way she, she's exactly like me and, and we're going to like co-do this. And yes and no, you know, God is saying, be a strong male leader. You know, be that in your home. Your kids need you to be That's right. a strong father. Your wife needs you to be a strong husband. And um, so me and my wife really kind of struggle with this. And the verse that Renee said that really 
made me think about this is John 7, 16 through 17. My message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. And um, I can just say that we, as a couple, decided we're going to pray to God and ask him to reorder, you know, our, our household. Like, God, let me be the strong leader in the home. Let me provide for my family and be a good dad and a good husband because I'm not any of those things. I'm just kind of coasting through and, you know, letting my wife take up all the slack on all these things that I should be doing. And it was amazing to see, you know, I don't know what the time frame was, but God began to make those changes. Um, and it's almost like because we're trying to be obedient without understanding all the, you know, areas that we needed to. Yeah. It's like all the blinds in our household have been lifted and all this light is just flooding in and there's so much more peace. There's so much more stability. And, it, and my wife even has echoed things that I've just told other people where I'm just saying it's, it's like our home has just finally clicked and things are oh, just they're awesome. rolling now. Whereas before it was like, like this tug of war, like clunky, we couldn't really get going anywhere. Yeah. And it, and so I would just say, it does sound backwards, and it does grate against your human nature, but these are things of God. This is God, the Creator, saying, this is how I made things to be. If you'll just line up in that, I'm going to bless you. Right. That's such a good testimony, Dave. And it's it's like, I would guess that that preconceived or that, that con- concept that you might have had where it's like, man, w- you know, we have to be co-leading the household. That's something where you're leaning on your own understanding of probably something translated to you by culture versus the way God explained it in the Bible. And, yeah. and to, to, to get that testimony of like, we put obedience first. We prayed to God, said, hey, we don't totally get this. This is a mystery, but we believe in you. Help our unbelief and to see it go so well. Yeah, and it does go really well because I'm not dominating her. She's not bulldozing me, and she's not a floor mat. You know, we're doing this together, and it just works. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Dave, uh, for being on the first episode of Season 2 of the Renew Church Leaders Podcast. We hope you can join us next time. I think we're going to tee up a little spiritual discipline with Shadonke Johnson talking about prayer and fasting. See you next time. (laughs) 